Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read there in Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1. And uh, reading verse 1. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Those of you who read uh, the pastoral letter that I sent out at the end of uh, last week will uh, remember that I said that I hope to begin a new series in this prophecy of Haggai uh, for the next uh, five weeks or so. Uh, it's, a, it's a very short book of the Bible, but it's a, a very important book and it's got very important lessons uh, for us to consider uh, as individuals and as a congregation, as it has lessons uh, for all the Lord's people to consider as individuals and as congregations. So we're going to look at the opening 11 verses of chapter 1 this morning and we're going to look at it under three headings. We're looking at the prophecy, then the problem and finally the proposal. The prophecy, the problem and the proposal. First we have the prophecy and you see that in verse 1. Here we see the prophecy that the Lord has for the returning Jewish community. The prophecy that the Lord has for the returning Jewish community. We can begin by noting when this prophecy came. Look at the beginning of verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. We're told that it was the second year of Darius the king. In 586 BC, Jerusalem and its temple fell to the Babylonian army and the Jews were taken into exile in Babylon. In 539 BC, Babylon fell to the Persian army and its king Cyrus. In 538 BC, Cyrus, moved by the Spirit of the Lord, gave the Jews the freedom to return to their own homeland and he also gave them permission to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In 536 BC, the Jews began rebuilding the temple, but work quickly came to a halt as the Jews became discouraged and disheartened through the opposition, the fear-inducing opposition that they were receiving from their enemies. In 530 BC, Cyrus died in battle and his son Cambyses became king of Persia. In 522 BC, Cambyses died of gangrene poisoning and Darius, one of the generals of the Persian army, took control. Darius was to spend the next few years uh, consolidating his position and crushing any claims and any rivals uh, that came his way. It's now 520 BC and it's the second year of the reign of King Darius. We're also told that it was the sixth month and the first day of the month. It's late summer. The harvest season is drawing near. And on this particular day of this particular month, a significant event takes place. The word of the Lord came. We can continue by noting who this prophecy came through. Look again at verse 1. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. We're told that the word of the Lord came. That is a standard prophetic formula. This word that's about to be declared isn't some man-made reflection. This word that's about to be declared is a divine revelation. And we're told that the word of the Lord came 
by the hand of Haggai the prophet. We don't know very much about this man called Haggai. All we're told is that he was a prophet. But what is important to understand is that this man is a prophet of the Lord who is coming with a message from the Lord. The emphasis falls not so much on the messenger himself, but on his divinely inspired and divinely given message. Finally, we can note who the prophecy came to. Look again at verse 1. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. We're told that the prophecy came to Zerubbabel. He was the son of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the, the son of Judah's second last king, Jehoiachin. And now this man Zerubbabel has been made governor of Judah. He occupies a position of authority, a position of influence within the Jewish community. But it's an authority and an influence that is regulated and that is controlled and that is restricted by the Babylonian government. And we're also told that the prophecy came to Joshua. He was the son of Jehoshadak, who was the son of Shealtiel, who was the high priest when Jerusalem and the temple fell to Babylon. And now Joshua, the grandson of Shealtiel, is the high priest. He occupies the highest position when it came to the religious order in Judah. He is the one who represents the priesthood before God, but he also represents the people as a whole before God. So Haggai's prophecy is very much for the two leading men of the Jewish community, men who are expected to steer and guide and direct the community, the people in a particular direction. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, I want us to see that this is a prophecy for a discouraged and delusioned people who have come through a turbulent season. A prophecy for a discouraged and disillusioned people who have come through a turbulent season. The context in which Haggai is prophesying is so important for us to remember. This Jewish community have experienced the horror of 50 or so years of exile in Babylon. This Jewish community have then known the elation of being allowed to return to their homeland and, and permission to rebuild their temple, their place of worship. This Jewish community have then suffered setbacks and threats and opposition which caused them to halt their temple building program. This Jewish community have, have lived through a time of political crisis as Babylon has fallen and then the Persian king Cyrus has died and then his son Cambyses has also died prematurely and it would seem that this turbulent season all these things that have been going on have left the Jews settling for mediocrity they had once dreamed big dreams of doing something great for the Lord something great for the Lord's cause but they're now hunkering down and they're just trying to get on with their lives they're just trying to survive and it's at this point in 520 BC that the word of the Lord comes to them through Haggai the prophet. It's a word that's designed to shake them from their general malaise. It's a word that's designed to wake them and to, uh, to wake them up from their apathy and their, and their lethargy. That's what this prophecy is designed to do. It's designed to shake these people and say, wake up, wake up. Now friend, this morning you might be feeling disillusioned. You might be feeling discouraged after the turbulent season that we have found ourselves in over the past year. 
And the words of this prophecy are a word from the Lord for those of us who may be feeling that way, those of us who might be feeling disillusioned, those of us who might be feeling discouraged, those of us who might be tempted to settle for mediocrity and perhaps doing very little, perhaps doing the bare minimum when it comes to the Lord and his cause. That, that is who this prophecy is for. People who are perhaps content with mediocrity. Just just getting by. Just plodding along. But we move from the prophecy to the problem. Look at verses 2 down to 6. And we now see the problem that the Lord sees with the Jewish community, the returning Jewish community. In verse 2 we see the problem of the people's procrastination. We read, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The people had been permitted by King Cyrus and commanded by the Lord to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. This temple had been designed by King David and constructed by King Solomon. This temple had been the great meeting place between God and man for many years. This temple had been at the heart of Judah's public worship for centuries. And in 586 BC, it was looted and burned to the ground by the Babylonians. Upon returning to their homeland, the people had started rebuilding the temple and had gotten so far as reconstructing the altar that was uh, more or less uh, uh, at the entrance of the temple, but they had made little progress beyond that. And for the best part of 15 to 20 years, they had done absolutely nothing. The temple is just lying in ruins. It is a desolation. It is a burned out shell. It is a monument. It is a memorial to better days. And the Lord says here that the people have been procrastinating when it came to rebuilding that temple. They were saying the time has not yet come. They didn't deny the importance of the temple. They didn't deny the necessity of the temple. They didn't even say that the temple shouldn't be rebuilt. But they were saying now isn't the time to rebuild. They were putting it off. They were procrastinating. Perhaps they'd been discouraged by the hostile neighbours round about them. Perhaps they were discouraged by the unsettled and uncertain political situation of Persia and Babylon. Perhaps they'd been discouraged by Persia's high taxes that had left them with little money. And so they said, not yet, not now, now isn't the time to rebuild. And the Lord is so displeased with that attitude that he can't even call them in verse 2, my people. He describes them, did you see, as these people. There is a separation between them and the Lord. There is a distance between them and the Lord. There is a gulf between them and the Lord. All isn't well in their covenant relationship. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see the problem of the people's priorities. When he did it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled, sorry, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? They're dwelling in panelled houses. They've returned to Judah and some of them have returned to Jerusalem and they've rebuilt their homes 
and they've decorated their homes with state-of-the-art wood panelling. They're, they're putting all their time and all their resources into having the best houses that they could possibly buy, that they could possibly afford, but the Lord's house is lying in ruins. It is not their priority. It is, as we said to the younger ones, taking second place. And the Lord challenges them concerning this. Look at verses 5 and 6. He instructs them to consider your ways. Consider your ways. Set their hearts on and give careful thought to their present situation. And look at what he says about their present situation. He says they sow, but they harvest little. They eat, but they never have enough. They drink but they never have their fill. They have clothes, but they're never warm. They, ha- they earn money, but the money goes into wallets and purses that have holes and, and the money just fritters away. In short, the people are experiencing frustration. They are experiencing a lack of satisfaction. They are experiencing a lack of fulfillment. They are experiencing a lack of blessing. Because they have failed to prioritise the Lord. The Lord is saying to them, consider your ways. Look at the situation that you're in. Pay attention to your providence. Can't you see that I'm trying to tell you something? Now friends, as we consider these verses, I want us to see the problem of misplaced priorities that we can all suffer from. The problem of misplaced priorities. That was the problem that the Lord was addressing in 520 BC. He's not rebuking the Jewish community for having nice houses. The Lord has nothing against people having nice houses. He is rebuking this Jewish community because they're prioritising their houses and putting off rebuilding his house. He is rebuking this Jewish community because they have no real interest in his cause. He is rebuking this Jewish community because their hearts are far from him. The building of the temple was the barometer of the people's spiritual condition. And the fact that the people haven't bothered rebuilding the temple, the fact that they have left the temple in ruins is an indicator of a cold, frosty, indifferent uh, attitude toward the Lord. And the same is true today. There is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to heaven. And that is through Jesus and his finished work at the cross. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. We are saved by grace alone. But our works, the way that we live our lives, displays whether or not we have a living, loving relationship with the Lord or not. Whether we are the Lord's covenant people or not. And when we prioritise our homes, our work, our families, or anything else to such an extent that the Lord and his cause get pushed aside, the question has to be asked, are we the Lord's people or not? Are we in covenant relationship with him or not? Is there a living, loving relationship between us and the Lord or not? You can't say, well, I I have a great relationship with the Lord. If everything else in our lives comes before him. Walter Kaiser writes, All too often we have placed other goals, interests, joys ahead of the place we have reserved for the living God. 
our children's educations, our children's little league games, our advancement in the company, our leisure time on the weekends, the priorities we set in our day-to-day lives testify to our concurrence with modern advertisements that we should have it our way, or that we are the one around which everything ought to revolve. However, God calls us to make a radical break with all that type of thinking and planning and to place his ways, his cause, his goals in first place ahead of every other earthly desire. Doing anything less is simply a modern form of ancient idolatry. We may as well name our earthly distractions Baal, Anat, Asherah or any of the gods or goddesses of Canaan for our idols are no better than those of ancient Israel. What a solemn thought. As we consider this Jewish community's problem of failing to prioritise the Lord, I want to ask, friend, is that your problem? Is that my problem? Is there something or is there someone that we are seen as being more powerful, more prominent, more preeminent than the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven? Is there something or someone that we are prioritising above him? That's the problem that the Lord sees and that Haggai addresses. And then finally we come to the proposal. Look at verses 7 to 11. Here we see the proposal that the Lord presents to the returning Jewish community. In verses 7 and 8, we hear the proposal that the Lord brings to the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The Lord moves from rebuking the people to issuing a series of commands in verse 7 and verse 8. Once again, he tells them to consider their ways. And he proceeds to give them three imperatives. He commands them to go up to the hills. He commands them to buy wood. It may not be the fancy expensive cedars of Lebanon that they used to build Solomon's temple. But it's what's available. And it's what they can afford. And the Lord is caring about that. He's not so much concerned about whether or not they're using the best that there is. He's saying get what you can afford. Get what is available. And he then commands them to build the house. Build the temple. He's saying, just get on with it. Stop putting it off. Stop prioritizing. Just get building. The Lord goes on to tell him that he will take pleasure in it and he will be glorified. Look at verse 8 again. The Lord says that he will take pleasure. He will delight in this building project. Now, this doesn't simply mean that the Lord will be happy when he sees a temple going up in Jerusalem. The Lord's not as shallow as all that. Rather, it means that the Lord will rejoice when he sees the spiritual reformation of his people manifested in the physical reconstruction of the temple. The Lord will delight in his people once again, prioritizing him and putting him above anything and anyone else. And the Lord adds that he will be glorified in this. His greatness, his excellence, his magnificence will be seen in the people giving him that first place. His weighty worth will be seen in the people treasuring him, valuing him, saying of him, you are worthy. Then in verses 9 to 11, the Lord emphasizes why the people should go about this building project. The Lord once again points out that the people have been prioritizing their houses above his house. 
At present, he says, his house lies in ruins. His house is a shambles. His house is desolate. Meanwhile, look at verse 9, he says, each person busies himself with his own house. They literally run to their own house. They are slow to do anything when it comes to the Lord and his temple. But when it comes to renovating their houses, these people can't move fast enough. They will mutter and they will murmur about the slowness and the expense of architects, contractors, builders, painters, plumbers, craftsmen and all the hosts of men needed to build a temple. And they'll say, well, it's just a long drawn out process. But somehow they have none of these problems when it comes to rebuilding and renovating and reconstructing their own homes. What is going on? And so the Lord tells them what he has done to wake them up. They've looked for much. They've expected much when it came to their harvest, but their harvest came to very little. And he says that what they brought home from the harvest was so meagre, it was so paltry, that it just blew away in the wind. And then he goes on to say that the heavens have withheld their dew and the the earth its produce. And the Lord says that he has called for a drought on the earth and the hills. Now that is significant. Nothing that the people are experiencing is down to bad luck. Bad circumstances. Rather, this is the Lord's sovereign providence. This is his divine design. The Lord has called, he says in verse 9, for this particular drought. And look at the impact of that divinely designed drought. It impacted on the grain, the new wine, the oil, the staple crops of Palestine. It impacted on all that the ground brought forth. It impacted on all the labours of man and beast. The recent harvest that the people have experienced and the harvest that they're just about to anticipate, this harvest at the end of the summer, these harvests have been generally fruitless. C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And the Lord's megaphone has been blowing loud and clear through these adverse providences that have been afflicting these Jews. Every poor harvest, every meagre crop yield, every fruitless tree shouted to this returning Jewish community, consider your ways, consider your ways. Now friends, as we consider these verses, I want us to see this great proposal, this great call to glorify the Lord that we are being given in them. This was the great proposal, the great call, the great command that the people in Haggai's day were being given. They were to build the temple and in building the temple they were doing it for the Lord's pleasure and the Lord's glory. They're prioritising the Lord, they're putting the Lord first, would both magnify the Lord and bring the Lord joy. And you know friends the same is true today. Walter Kaiser writes, the chief end of the work of every man and woman of God is not so much to build temples or to carry out other external works of righteousness or good works as it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. A.W. Tozer put it this way, 
the purpose of God in sending his son to die and rise and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that he might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God, feeling and expressing it and letting it get into our labours and doing nothing except as an act of loving worship to Almighty God through his Son, Jesus Christ. That, friends, is the greatest and highest of callings for us as individuals and as a congregation. The call to make much of the Lord of hosts. The call to make much of the Lord of the armies of heaven. The call to be involved in and immersed in the cause and work of Christ. The call to seek first the kingdom of the king who alone is able to meet all the needs of all his people. If you are a Christian, this is what you are called to. You are not called to prioritise your friends, your family, your income, your work to such an extent that the Lord takes second place. Rather, you are called, my Christian friend, to engage in this great calling to magnify the Lord. And it doesn't matter what others round about you are saying. You are called to magnify and glorify him for his pleasure. And if you are not yet a Christian friend... This is what you are being called to. You are being called to this great work, this magnificent calling of magnifying and glorifying the Lord. And and there is nothing higher, there is nothing greater, there is nothing more glorious than that calling. And so as we close with this proposal, I want to remind you, friends, that the Lord will not tolerate coming second, even a close second, in the lives and affections of his people. He wants our worship. He wants our worship. He wants us to come before him saying, you are worthy, regardless of what has happened in the past week or what we are facing in the coming week. He wants our worship. He wants us to put aside, to put to death, to run away from self-absorption and and self-interest. He he wants our lives to be characterised by Christ-centredness, God-centredness, a Paul-like desire to glorify him, to honour him with our bodies, whether by life or by death, because for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Friends, is that our great and governing priority. Is that what's going to get you out of bed tomorrow? Is that what's going to propel you into our in-person service tonight? Is that what's going to get you to sign up, maybe start signing up, for the in-person services? Is that what's going to get you out to the prayer meetings? Is that what's going to motivate your decisions at a deacon's court level and at a Kirk session level. The glory of God's name. And if it's not, will today be the day when you consider your ways and resolve to do so? That's what this passage is encouraging us to do. It's saying, right, examine yourselves, look at your ways. Is 
the Lord your priority? Is he governing all that you say, all that you do, all that you think? And if he's not your priority, are you going to resolve to make him your priority? Are you going to go up to the mountain? And are you going to get the wood? And are you going to engage in that great temple building project, that building up of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that he has purchased with his own blood? Oh, friends, let's do so.